welcome to the first of three bonus Christmas episodes of Robbie the Robot's Waiting. Instead of handing out presents, we've each chosen a film or TV show the others have never seen before and asked them to give it a watch. Why? To spread the joy of sci-fi and fantasy over the festive season, because nothing says Christmas like geeking out. I'm Richard Edwards, and with me as ever are Tanavi Patel and Dave Bradley, and we've also invited a special guest to our Christmas party. We're very happy to be joined by Jason Kingsley OBE, CEO of Rebellion, the publisher of hit video games such as Sniper Elite and Alien vs Predator, not to mention the galaxy's greatest comic, 2000 AD. He's also an expert on medieval history and hosts the Modern History TV channel on YouTube. Hello, Jason. Hello. Uh, well Hi. done for getting through all of that. There's quite a lot. Of <laughs> <on TV. laughs> Hello, everyone. Great. Great to have you with us. Thank you. Amazing. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited. I, I, I'm not quite sure what's going to be unleashed yet, so um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. Now, this movie is Dave's pick, so it's probably best if he introduces his choice and explains why we watched it. So I have shared with you Hawk the Slayer, the 1980 movie by Terry Marcel, uh, a classic of sword and sorcery. Um and a punchline in the TV sitcom Spaced, and uh, a very influential film on folk of a certain age. And uh, I think that's why we've invited Jason on as well. Jason and I know uh, are both fans of this, and, and we know this because we've we've communicated before on this and spoken about it. And um, and so we are we are the experienced uh, Hawk the Slayer folk. And, and uh, Richard and Tanavi, I'm pleased to be able to give you the chance to to watch it as well. So. Um, <laughs> The, the reason why I've shared this, and perhaps Jason can also say why, why he's a fan, is although watching it for the first time, I appreciate that perhaps the special effects were a little shonky and the, the lead actor, John Terry, is perhaps a little wooden. This was, at the time, kind of unique. It was a, a, a fantasy film at a time before the big fantasy boom of the 80s and 90s had come along. Um, there wasn't much else like this around, and it's just full of imagination. And... For those who haven't seen it, um, it's, a, it's sort of a, a medieval fantasy take on a um, uh, Seven Samurai story, that kind of Kurosawa story, um, set in a fantasy realm with the with the um, the eponymous hawk, gathering about him a, a, a troop of elves and dwarves and giants uh, in order to battle the evil Voltan, who's also his half brother. And um, while it's clearly got an ambition above perhaps its budget. Uh, it did manage to score Jack Palance in the uh, as the the villain, who is absolutely delightful on screen, and I think it does some fantastic things with the fantasy setting. I think it's got a, a really striking magic weapon in the sword, and I hope Jason will tell us about that because he's actually wielded that sword. I have indeed, yes, it, yes. It, it, it also <laughs> manages to be, I think, really kind of fantastical in a way. For the the, the limits of the budget aside, it manages to make elves and dwarves and woodlands kind of creepy in a way that I think even big budget productions like Lord of the Rings don't quite manage. Um, you know, there's, there's a kind of authenticity about it, I think. So I don't know, Jason, do you agree? What, what, what is it about it that, that you know, has inspired a sort of 40-year love of that film for you? Cool. Well, what, what I, I, would, I would start by saying I think it was one of the first visual uh, references we all had for that growing Dungeons and & Dragons, Tunnels and & Trolls, RuneQuest. Hmm. It was a sort of first manifestation of it. And it was also what I call low fantasy um, because it involved a small group of people in, in costumes that you could probably imagine making for yourself when you were sort of 15 or 16, in woodlands that you probably knew uh, were quite familiar to you. So you could 
you could imagine yourself having the same kind of adventures, I think, when you were a teenager, I suppose, or, a, you know, not quite a teenager, that sort of area for me. And um, there's an awful lot of scope for the imagination. And um, there's an awful lot that goes on off screen, you know. So, so Crow, for example, who is um, the, uh, the slightly robotic and interesting presentation of an elf who's the last of his kind, um, who decries the burning of the silver forest, um, and um, you know, and uh, the pit of Gimri in the Iron Hills is also mentioned as as being de- destroyed, and and all of these things are sort of throwaway lines by really quite good actors um, in a very low budget setting, and mm-hmm. and in, for some reason that gives my imagination or it gave my imagination scope to fly off into these places. So it's almost because there isn't any CGI, because the special effects are so lo-fi um, and shot in camera, that it, it, it kind of, it's almost more graphically pleasing because you can't see it, you have to imagine it. So that's the thing. I think, I think there are two sorts of people. There are those that love Hawk the Slayer and there are those that are just wrong. absolutely you know i I would say it was a it was a punchline that very thing was a punchline in in space but you mentioned there something which i think is also worth mentioning too absolutely about the actors who were saying these lines it had an incredible cast like real kind of british screen royalty you know we've got roy kinnear in there we've got uh, Annette Crosby from from TV in there. You know, we've got William Morgan Shepherd, the the father of of Mark Shepherd. William Morgan Shepherd is in the most recent Star Trek f- film franchise, for instance. You know, as a thing, and and so these are these are you know really great actors who who take it really seriously, right? This sort of quite quite cheesy storyline, and I think that's amazing. That I you know I I you know I, I think they really bring it to life, and they also have some fantastically arch lines to say as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, some of the the, the whole movie is filled with. Uh, especially when you're a young man, is filled with very quotable things, mm. um, uh, and and nothing really. You, you don't get given the backstory of why those priests have tied um, have tied the, the the dwarf to a lake and, and are rather ineffectively shooting fire arrows and missing from about thirty feet away. You know, there's a, there's a, that is just we start there, yeah. and you have to put in the backstory. And in some ways, role playing games are very like that. It's um, role-playing games require your brain to participate in them. You have to try to imagine what's going on and, it, and, it, and you have to make an effort to enjoy it. Um, and I probably watched the movie, I don't know, 20 or 30 times at various oh, stages wow. of my life. Um, and uh, I, I don't know. I mean, especially since I've got horses, I love the horse action and the horses always appear and disappear at convenient times. And it doesn't really matter. Absolutely, I, I agree. You're, the, the quotable lines are incredible. Absolutely, I, you know, I still to this day have that. You know, the, the, the hunchback will have something to say about this, and, and <laughs> yeah. I've got a poor old, poor old crow in the church, you know, the peace of the dead. It's yeah. just, uh, <laughs> it's just incredibly sort of short, evocative lines. I know, I, I appreciate that coming at it cold. It, it, it's, it's not the kind of, you know, the, the, the kind of slightly more. Um, mimetic dialogue, I guess, or whatever the, the, the posh phrases that you might have today, but but it so totally suits the the, the Dungeons and Dragons style setting. And I should say that I think to a degree, there's an interesting thing about the the music as well, which is 
which was created by Harry Robertson, who was a kind of co-creator of it with, with Terry Marcel. And it's very distinctive. And often I think people coming to it fresh are misled a little bit by it. It's got that slightly 1980s disco feel to it. And it's it's much more in keeping with like something like War of the Worlds or something than than, than we what we think of from fantasy movies now. But that that to me, that sort of adds to the weirdness of it. Because I, I, I when I hear it, I, I remember when that movie came out, what a fantasy movie was supposed to sound like was was not clear. That was almost my. This was almost kind of my first exposure to this kind of kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, be, it hadn't, it, hadn't, the tropes hadn't been established, had they? Exactly, I mean, there were, exactly. There were a slew of movies that were higher budget and perhaps were sort of less authentic to the sort of lo-fi fantasy genre mm. that we all encountered with Dungeons and Dragons and Thumbs and Trolls and stuff. And and therefore it was it was forging its own path. I mean that yeah. sort of the the hawk the hawk noises. You know when yeah. hawk appears, steps out from behind a tree. Um, and there's those sort of the, the pipes go, and you think, yay, uh, <laughs> there's Hawk, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, and and um, the understatedness, you know, um, uh, the, the way Crow delivers his lines, and uh, mm. it, it's kind of very minimalist, and I have no yeah. idea whether that was deliberate or it just sort of happened on the day. Um, but for me, it all holds together really, really well. I'd love to hear what Tanavi and Richard think about coming to it the first time, but I do want to dive into, while well, we're still talking about while well, we love it, into the kind of weapons <laughs> of it. Um, I'm not going to give them the chance to actually... Yeah, no, yeah, I'm yeah, sorry, I'm just so enthused about it. We're going to filibuster this, and they're not going to have a chance to say it. <laughs> I think the weapons in it are incredible, and I'd like to talk about the sword a little bit. Before I get there, the fact is, I think that it has ideas that are a little bit more ambitious than the, the budget and the experience and the expertise allowed them to deliver. But if you look at it and you realize that there's there's a guy with a machine gun crossbow right and there's a you know and there's an elf with this who's able to shoot arrows incredibly fast and they don't even manage to sort of match that fantastical weaponry in like really quite modern fantasy films you know there there's 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 nothing like that machine gun crossbow in six lord of the rings films you know i think i think it's you know it's it's yeah. uh, it's it's kind of an unusual thing and they played with some interesting ideas but the sword itself Itself, the elven mind sword um, that uh, that Hawk wields is is a very memorable piece, and you've had it in your hands, Jason, haven't you? I've seen the video on YouTube of of you talking through it, but tell us a little bit like what it's like, like to hold it. It's more than just a like it's not a polystyrene prop, is it? It's a real thing. No, no, it's actually it's actually a real sword. The blade itself um, it, it's interestingly weighted. As somebody, I, I use medieval reproduction medieval swords all the time, and I've handled originals in museums. And they're usually a lot lighter than you expect. Your, your typical person thinks of a medieval sword as a big lump of metal that you kind of club people with as much as cut them. They're actually not like that at all. They're, when they're properly made, they are beautiful instruments. and They're quite light in the hand because of where the balance point is. Um, now, what's interesting about this is it's a real old sword. It's an antique sword that's been, um, for the movie, was re-hafted, basically. It has a has a very, very long and unusual handle on the end, and it has the mind sword and the, the hands, the magic sword that grips the mind sword. We see at the beginning of the movie where the hand opens up and grips the mind sword, which actually makes it a little bit unwieldy. But it also means that the, um, this is going to get a bit technical, the balance point of the sword is actually about, um, is just on the cross guard, which means the sword is actually very flexible in the hand. Um, so Terry lent it to me, and I, I did this 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 piece in the woods, which was just brilliant fun to do. Um, it's not one of my more successful videos, but for me, it absolutely is because it it meant so much. You know, it was such an honour to actually use that because that 
sword meant so much to me growing up. Um, mm. It's nice to know that I've, I've actually handled it and looked after it. And um, uh, But it, it was interesting. I spoke to Terry about it, and I said, was, was it done deliberately to make it easier to wield? Because the thing about the balance point of a sword, if the, if the balance point of the sword is in the hilt, it means that the sword moves very fast, but it doesn't cut very well. So if you want a sword that is going to act more like um, a cleaver and, and you're going to use a lot of cutting movements to it, like from horseback, for example, you need a bit more tip weight than that sword has. And typically swords used for cavalry are a bit more tip heavy. Swords used for foot combat or for sparring or for um, dueling uh, rather than for battle, because a sword isn't really a battlefield weapon. But... Um, are often balanced differently to allow faster movement. And it was very clear that this sword had a, a unique feel in the hand, which is, which is really kind of, was, was actually quite shocking from a, from a movie sword, because I've handled real movie swords, and they're often aluminium, you know, they, they don't feel right. But this actually felt, and this is going to sound weird, it felt quite alive in the hand, for real. Um, wow. Now, on one, one, one stage, you could say, well, yeah, but it's a movie prop, and there was only mm. one made. Um, now, interestingly, I asked Terry about Voltam's sword. Ah, and right. Voltam's sword has gone missing. Oh. Voltam's sword disappeared before the end of the movie and has never been seen. And was it was it the evil one? Did it go with the evil one? <laughs> uh, spooky, isn't it? Yes, the wizard's <laughs> gathering in the south. Yeah, no, yeah <laughs> nobody knows where Voltam's sword has gone. So. Wow, 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 wow. wow. Yeah. That's good. That's good trivia. That's interesting. I didn't realise that. <laughs> Not heard that one. Yeah. I mean, how, how, where do you think the mind sword ranks among the sort of great fancy weapons? Because, you know, in the 80s, you had some fantastic ones. And I'll class the lightsaber as a fancy weapon because Star Wars is fantasy. And then in Krull, obviously, you had the glaive, which was, was like an Araby with knives. Do you think it's up, up there in the pantheon of the great weapons? I, I think it's top. I think it's top, basically. I love the glaive, but the glaive's really hard to catch. You've got to time that right. Otherwise, it's <laughs> yeah. Um, I also really, I mean, it's not fantasy, but I like the uh, steel boomerang in, in Mad Max. I always think that's yeah. funny because uh, that reminds me of the glaive, but in a post, post-apocalyptic setting. Um, I mean, if you think about it, Hawksley, he, the, the, the automatic crossbow and the basically automatic elf, um, are they, they slaughter many, many more people. I mean, I actually once, I can't remember what the numbers are, but I once counted how many people they killed and how many people Hawk killed. And I basically, I think that uh, the, the crossbowmen and crow are like a hundred times more lethal than, than the man who gets the name Slayer. I mean, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, so, you know, the, the, uh, little things like um, Crow checking his arrows and checking the points on them, I think is a really nice feature for realising how important this is to him. Um, and, you know, and the, the technique, the in-camera technique they used to do those automatic fast shooting things. Mm -hmm. These days, of course, it would all be CGI and they'd, they'd have some fancy stuff. I actually think this is a more convincing way of doing it because you have to suspend your disbelief to make it work. Um, I'm interested to know, 
Tanavi, I'm guessing this is the first time you've seen this film because I basically sent it to you and insisted. Um, uh, what, what was your take on it then? You don't have the you don't have the benefit of that glow of nostalgia that we have. So I, you know, my relationship with it starts when I saw it live when I was, you know, so to speak, broadcast on TV when I was young. But you That's... don't. What, what did you take? What did you take from it? Yeah, it's true. And I think, you know, I'm not as well versed in the 80s pantheon of movies, possibly. But when I opened it up and I saw the DVD cover, I was like, is this going to be He-Man? He's like that, he's got a big sword. It's the first thing I thought. And he's standing there with it up. And mm. I was like, okay. And then I put it on. And then within the first sort of couple of minutes, I was like, oh, this feels a bit more like Princess Bride, kind of, you know, the feeling to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm inkling that way. And then, <laughs> and then I sort of started to think, oh, but, you know, the way it's Hawk the Slayer, is it going to have this guy with his, you know, obviously with his, like, sword and taking on all these um, evil entities, is it going to be a bit more Flash Gordon, which obviously came out in the same year as well. That's true. But then very quickly, <laughs> as it progressed, I thought, actually, the whole theme of the movie felt more sort of, Robin Hood and his band of merry men trying to save Maid Marian from the evil show Nottingham. And so that's kind of how I was sort of viewing it later on. But it was it was definitely from the get-go, I saw I would say I was engrossed and I would definitely watch it again. I don't know after <laughs> Jason, after 20 or 30 watches, whether I'd feel the same <laughs> way or not. But um it was, and yes, and Jack Palance, he does a great job as the villain. I think he is a standout because I do feel like some of the other actors felt flat, especially against him. Um, but then at the same time, I couldn't tell in a way whether that was part of its charm because there were like there were some quotable lines like that when uh, I think it's Voltar's son comes in and stuff goes, I brought you a message the message of death. That's, that's, that's possibly like, my favourite line from the whole thing. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and I, said, I am I no like, messenger. I know. And then I was like, am I supposed to be laughing here? I don't know. I'm not sure. And for me, the, because a lot of the actors that I recognise, I was like, they're from the Carry On movies. That's where I could... Knew <laughs> so I was like, I'm not sure how, how I'm supposed to be, like whether it's supposed to be more cheesy or not, but... Ultimately, it was a it was definitely a fun watch, and yeah, they managed you know they mixed the genres, and I like that that um, that way that you've described it as being low fantasy. That's definitely yeah. how it felt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I felt it was a shame because it you know obviously that it was about this guy with this special magical sword. One of the things that I felt um, was a bit lacking, like I wish I'd see more, of, was the actual action with the sword. Often. You, they sort of started and they just cut to the guy who was already had already been stabbed or you know there was smoke or there was snow and so you know the action wasn't as clear and in a way that's a shame I don't know whether you know Jason whether it's to do with the fact that you know it maybe it had something to do with whether the ac- actor could actually <laughs> fight with the sword or not I'm not sure but well, um, the, the sword itself but it didn't actually have a stunt sword and the sword itself whilst it isn't sharp it has got an edge on it and quite frankly if you got it wrong you would cut somebody through their costume quite badly so I my guess is they did a lot of in-camera reversals they sort of they placed the sword under somebody's arm in the right angle and then pulled the sword away and then right. reversed the shot, that kind of. So they, they 
it's actually quite a masterclass of editing. I mean, you know, arrows hitting trees and hitting people yeah. is all done with the you know, superb old school movie editing techniques. And when they try to do special effects, I mean, they used a lot of black light and fluorescent, uh, what they call laster light, reflective tape on right. a lot of things. So they had a basically had a light around the camera so that whatever the camera was filming, that light would reflect straight back in. So the, the glowing mind sword now would either be done with CGI or it would be green or something, or it would actually be lit. There's plenty of space in the in the handle for lots of batteries. Um, you could actually make it light up these days and cast the light, but it was done the other way around. It was reflective. Um, and there was an awful lot of camera skill in getting the exposure right to make it look glowing but not too glowing and and you know it was all shot on film it was all shot behind the pinewood studios in the back lot there and the 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 fun thing about that is that i think that's why they had all the people turn up so basically there were probably a whole bunch of out of work actors wandering around the canteen in pinewood and they said oh we're shooting a movie out the back it's a bit silly but it's good fun everybody's hamming it up royally do you want to come along? It's like, who's in it? Well, Roy Kinnear and Mia you know, Ressler and, 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 you know, all of them. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Can I be in it? Yeah, sure. Come along, spend a couple of days, get some free food and um, dress up and die in a dramatic way. So uh, I, I'm sure there was an element of that. It was just convenient to be on that movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Richard, you now you hadn't seen it before either. What did you make of it? Yeah, it's a film that I kind of knew because of Spaced. And it, I just knew that it made That's Bill good. Bailey angry when someone said it was rubbish. <laughs> um, and of course, Bill Bailey is topical now, you know, Strictly Come Dancing. Um, so I just thought of it as part of the 80s fantasy boom. So I thought it was going to be a lot bigger. I thought it was going to be more like Krull or Dragon Slayer or something. So I was quite surprised how small it is. And I'm looking at it now, I think the budget was 600,000, which is nothing. You know, yeah, it was even nothing then. Um, yeah. And... And not just the sort of in terms of effects, but the scale of it. You know, it's a lot of fighting in woods. You know, you, you've got this convent that is clearly a map painting. And then the whole plot is basically about protecting a convent or, or having a fight in a convent. And it's just uh, a guy against his brother. It's not this big epic fantasy in that regard. It's quite small. And, and as Tanavi said about Robin Hood, it is Robin Hood with a bit of magic. You know, yeah. um, and you know you've got the the Kurosawa connections with uh, you know because it's based on Yojimbo and uh, Fistful of Dollars. Um, so yeah, I was quite surprised by that point of view. And when you get round to the effects, okay, it's quite easy to mock them now, but I think they were really inventive. You know, we've talked about the machine gun arrows, and they do it by sort of you know running footage quickly or backwards and forwards. And yeah, it is a bit odd. But it's actually a brilliant idea. You know, you can see a lot of inventiveness in what they did um, because the ideas were kind of ahead of the budget that they had. There's other things where I kind of think this is the low fantasy thing. You know, you've got a giant who is six foot seven. He's really not that big. You know, he's a big man. (laughs) It really is on the low fantasy end. I'm kind of, I'm really glad I've seen it. It's probably not one of my favourites of the era but I think it is a really interesting movie for all sorts of reasons. I'm really surprised that none of you, neither of you have have, um, have been highly critical of it because uh, I have a lot of colleagues who are highly critical of it um, and they've got perfectly valid reasons and I I would support their ability to to criticise it for all the reasons I I kind of partly agree it can be criticised for. But for me, those, those elements don't matter because of what else it does and how honest how honest 
its straightforwardness is. And and also, I think it's really interesting for us to look back in the days when people were trying to make fantasy movies, but the technology wasn't there. And if you think about the power of computer games at the time, and, you know, special Mm -hmm. effects in general, you know, um, Star Wars, you know, they were using, they weren't really using CGI for their first Star Wars stuff. And it's sort of in that era. Um, And they had a minuscule budget. So uh, I... uh, I love things that are shot in camera that don't use CGI. And sometimes I look at things that are 90% CGI these days, and I it, it loses a sort of sense of authenticity. Um, and I just think, oh, well done. You know, you spent another million quid on another scene using computers. And anybody can do that with enough money, but not everybody can do the in-camera effects in the same way. So I don't know, maybe that's just me. No, I, I agree. I think there's absolutely. And I think, you know, it's easy to, to kind of make a comparison with the, let's say, the most recent Hobbit films, because it's based on a, a classic fantasy um, series of book, you know, book that, um, that that influenced the Dungeons and Dragons genre and, and this film too. And of course, it had a load of money spent on it and, it, and it's quite a lot of ways. But I, I kind of agree. I think you can watch watch the Hobbit and see all the CG and the um, the the kind of uh, sort of artificiality of some of the the kind of um, Legolas running up the gravity defying crumbling building or or the you know or the the hobbits and the dwarves bouncing down the um, the, the river in their barrels and and I think well you know well well done you've got a graphics package there um, I but I, I sort of <laughs> but it's not actually affecting me in the same way that a mist misty clearing with an elf who barely speaks. And sort of music that I can't place is is doing to me. You know, there's the there's something weird about Hawk the Slayer. I don't imagine Crow the Elf having a romance with any of the characters that, that he comes across, or you know, or, or any of these things. And I, I think there's something something about that. And the fact that that when the the, the the sorceress helps them attack the convent, and it's all silly string. I mean, I, I do get that it's you know it, it's silly string, and that's and that's kind of kind of nonsense. But at the same time, it's sort of. I don't know. It's just kind of, sort of, a bit weird, and that adds to it. You know, it's it's weird and it's real. And there's a, you know, there's someone there who's got silly string all over them, and that sort of, I don't know, kind of moves me in in a way that that watching some more, um, you know, uh, that watching some some CG that I don't believe either does. You know, there's something I think that we can connect with with things that are shot in camera, because you sort of know that somebody is jumping over a log for real, or there's a scene where Crow jumps uh, into the tree, and it's self-evident that <laughs> there's a bit of a story behind that, because because uh, he, he told me about that at one of the meetings you had. Basically, he, he, he jumps up into the tree, because elves can do that, but it was obviously reversed, so they had the, the crew in the foreground hiding the piles of um, cardboard boxes that he was landing on, um, so if you look at the scene and then they reversed it so that he sort of does a, you know, an obviously reverse jump out of the tree. But it was about 20 feet up and he is jumping backwards and he is an actor, not a stuntman. And he had to do it three times. And the third time he said there weren't many boxes left. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he, he was very, very worried about seriously hurting himself. But Terry said, no, 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 we've got to get this shot. We can only do it three times. Um, and and that was the one they used. So they, there's, there's a certain amount of genuine physical risk written on everybody's faces there, um, <laughs> and knowing there are no cables stopping him from dying or anything like that. So 
there's um it, it's a bit like you know there's a the style of filmmaking called dogma where there are sort mm. of these rules about what they can you know you the music has to be in the scene it has to be playing and you can't edit and uh and, and all of that um and and there's a certain level at this stage of fantasy filmmaking where they had to use the sort of old school filmmaking techniques and they couldn't retreat to cgi they can't fix it in post you know the most they can do is repeat the same footage three times to make the arrows go fast or they can cut quickly to make it look like the arrow goes into the person and they fall over so so in many ways it goes right back to the early days of cinema which for me gives it a more believable unbelievable component I think the 21st century has really changed our idea of what fantasy can be. You know, when Lord of the Rings came along, suddenly everything was possible. You know, you could have battles of the size of Pelennor Fields. You know, there were just no limits. And then you can go back and watch another fantasy movie from 20 years earlier. And they really were making do with what they could, you know, and and they couldn't do anything of that scale. Now, I'm not going to criticise the movie because the effects are shonky because they're kind of doing what they can they're being inventive um you know that's like if you sort of go down that road none of early doctor who works you know that's that's just what they were doing um you know if i was criticizing i'd say perhaps the script it's a bit empty of humor you know it's it's very serious uh and i think if you were making a similar movie now you would um have a few more gags in it though at the same time you have got jack palance in it who is hamming up like anything i mean it's basically a role he recycled in batman a few years later he's <laughs> he plays exactly the same it's, he's it's just very- jack palance i mean the fact that that basically he's he's an actor who's the same age as his dad in the movie and substantially substantially older than his brother um and you know and then there's the fight over the woman and he gets blinded and He's got his revenge, and and is it five hundred pieces of gold that that he's trying to extort from the slightly creepy bishop? I can't remember what, exactly how many it is, but I always felt when I, when I remember the first few times I watched it, I always felt there was a sinister undertone of the uh, of the bishop character or the whatever he's called the the the, the one who says no, we we can't uh, we can't give them money, um, but there is a man I know whose name is Hawk who might be able to help us. I always felt he was actually deeply sinister. Don't know why, but the undertones of, um, of, of there's more going on behind the scenes in Hawkless Lair than you are led to believe. Uh, actually, on that note, you're right. It, it does leave so much scope for kind of um, imagination, as you said, and, and things happening off screen. Um, Jason, you actually were involved. I don't know whether you're able to speak about this, but you were involved in um, a, a move to to reimagine uh, it, weren't you, and bring it back? That's how you know. That's how we kind of got talking about it in 2015, I think. Oh yeah, very much so. We we tried we tried and 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 failed to to raise money for a Kickstarter to do a sequel with Terry. Um, so we did a little bit of publicity for there. We we did a premiere. Um, we we uh, uh, you know uh, we we did a kind of cast and crew screening and all that kind of stuff. And we tried quite hard in a short space of time to sort of gather enthusiasm. But sadly, as Kickstarters sometimes do, it it it, it didn't get anywhere near what we needed, so it, it failed. But that doesn't that does not mean Hawk is not going to return at some stage. If I've had anything to do with it, which I have. Um, Hawk will come back in some guise somehow, sometime. Oh, amazing. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> if you bring something back, um, something like Hawk the Slayer, that means a lot to other people. You've obviously got the nostalgia play. You, you, 
but you've also got to um, be aware of how things have moved forward. I mean, it's a little bit like us doing the Judge Dredd. You know, there's the Stallone Judge Dredd movie, and there's the there was the new one that the the, the, the guys at DNA and Alex Garland and uh, Donald Andrew McDonald did, and Carl Urban was in. You know, it sort of reinvents itself. So it'd be interesting to have a discussion, perhaps on a wider basis, of what what would you do for revisiting Hawk the Slayer and his world? How 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 CGI do you go or do you right. not? Do yeah, you yeah, try yeah. to go lo-fi? Do you add a little bit of CGI? What do you do with a mind sword? You know, the, the techniques they use to make the mind sword fly through the air, apart from very important psychic powers, some of the practical effects they use, <laughs> reversing things. Is that good enough for an audience today? Hmm. Um, I don't know. And, and those are going to be interesting questions if, if Hawk ever rides again. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And I, I, you know, I think there are things you can do. You know, I, this is slightly off topic, but I, you know, we've been watching the, um, the Mandalorian and talking about it. And the Mandalorian is, I think, a great piece of, um, of storytelling, perhaps drawing even on some similar kind of influences that, that, um, movies like Hawk were in. And that's, that uses a lot of CGI, but you kind of can't tell, you know, it uses it quite, you know, um, quite effectively it's using a kind of virtual studio setup and i think there, there are things you can do there that, that that can create those those worlds that that don't feel forced these days yeah well i think that's when, i think when cgi is good is when you don't know that it's there it's right. um mm. it's like storytelling isn't it it's like storytelling and storytelling works you don't notice you're having a story told to you but when it gets clunky you're sort of taken out of it but i think the whole virtual production and as you'll probably know i i did a, a sort of four minute piece which uh owes a lot to perhaps to Hawk the Slayer and to Excalibur and uh you know and to you know, Robin of Sherwood the TV series and um we did that in virtual production with 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 screens behind us and so filming rather than the CGI being put in afterwards this is where the CGI happens simultaneous with the performance and it's um it's a very new technique and it's incredibly powerful and I think I think it's going to radically change how sort of genre movies can get made because no longer are you limited to, you know, a lot of the reason why movies are expensive is because you've got to transport the whole circus that is a movie crew around and you've got to look after them and feed them and you've got to go to this castle and that castle and this landscape. And that costs a fortune, physically costs a fortune. Whereas in virtual production, you can bring, the crew can be in a studio, nice and controlled, and you can bring the digital space into the landscape. And so you can have Hawk and his buddies riding through that deserted woodland, but you can heighten it as well because it can be CGI and it can be a little bit more than an ordinary woodland. It can be a, an ordinary woodland with extra bits. I'm, I'm really quite excited about the possibilities of using quite frankly, game engine technology to create genre entertainment on the screen, film and TV. So I think in the next 10 years, there's going to be some absolutely magnificent things made for relatively modest budgets compared to Lord of the Rings, for example, the, the movie. Well, Rebellion, you've got your own studio now, haven't you, for, for doing that kind of thing? We have. In, in typical Rebellion style, Chris and I was decided to have a go at doing... Um, some film and TV stuff, and we, we looked around for places to do it. And, of course, they're all booked up, or they were booked up before COVID ha happened. And um, we couldn't find anywhere to film, so we decided that, well, the movie studio is only a big shed anyway, so there's got to be some big sheds we can find somewhere. So 
we we stumbled across a um a very very big shed 250,000 square feet which is basically 100 yards by 100 yards to give you a sense of scale um and that was an old printworks and it was soundproofed because the printworks inside were generating a lot of noise so they needed to not let that noise leak out of course it works the other way around as well so the sound outside can't leak in and um we're in the process of converting that so we've got a vfx company there we've got uh the the virtual virtual production is being set up there and we did a whole month worth of that recently and we have all of our audio motion our motion capture specialists are based there as well which is part of the rebellion group Um, and they do lots of mocap for all the big movies so there's actually quite an interesting collision of skills and abilities that we've got a rebellion. You know, the real-time graphics is something we do in games and always have done. Storytelling with 2000 AD and the Abaddon books and all of that kind of stuff. VFX specialists now, motion capture specialists, and uh, a bloke at the top that likes wearing armor and uh, riding horses. <laughs> so, you know, you, 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 you've got a will there to do genre entertainment, uh, hopefully quite well. So fingers crossed over the next few years, you'll start to see more input, more output from us. Amazing. It's really exciting. I think, so for you then, obviously with your own studio soon, um, would you like to see Hawk the Slayer made into, uh, have a sequel as a movie or would you prefer a TV series? Because at the end, it's obvious that they left it open so that they could make more. And They couldn't the have left it more open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Where was the sequel? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I think Terry had ideas. Terry and, and, and Harry had ideas, but it never happened. But um, I personally like TV. I like the long form a long-form screen story, especially for what is ultimately a band of eclectic heroes wandering through a landscape, um, mm. writing wrongs and, and solving things. I mean, really, The Mandalorian is the, the Strontium Dog story or the Kung Fu story, or you know, hero goes from you know, hero appears, solves a problem, goes away again. You know, that's a, that's a fantastic trope for a TV show even though you need a, a story arc over the top of it as well, it, it kind of works. It's a closed story in one show. So I would, I would love to see, um, you know, maybe Hawk the Slayer comic book. You know, there's, there's, we've got comic publishing there. There's, there's stuff to do. And there's so many little mentions of things within the world that you were talking about earlier, um, just sort of like fly, sort of flyaway comments about things that are happening that we don't see off, off screen. So it does seem like there were many other adventures to be had or that had been had already but hadn't been shown to us. Well, it's one of the, I think it's one of the charms of the piece. There are lots of these, as I said before, there's these throwaways, you know, the Silver Forest and the Pit of Gimri and the Iron Hills and, and you know, the, the weird cults that we get to see and who, who get yeah. scared off and the, the slavers on the River Shale and the Hunchback and the Hunchback's brother and, you know, the, the, there's... there's, there's lots of oddness there to explore yeah yeah we like hard <laughs> whether you do a direct sequel or whether you sort of do side quests i don't know you know whether you actually do it before or after or whether you take the characters and talk about their other adventures and leave hawk the slayer the movie kind of in its own space there's always a danger of trying to kind of attach something to the end of that movie or to the beginning of it. And, and it might be, well, let's see some more adventures of Hawk and his, his gang. 
before you know some of them died or had their hands hacked off or got stabbed or mm. you know basically the whole movie is a set of loose ends the, 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 there's no shortage of loose ends that we can build upon no. yeah we'll leave it there with Hawk the Slayer uh, thank you very much Jason my pleasure thank you thanks Cheers Jason for joining us our next Christmas special will be my choice, which is The Devil's Backbone, so look out for that. But for now, goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.